I went to seminary in St. Louis, and uh, there's a, a bunch of energy that can come with having a seminary. Uh, Covenant Seminary in St. Louis talks a lot about church planting, and so our denomination plants a church, a new church in St. Louis, almost one a year. Uh, church planting is, is tough work. What happens is you have a pastor, and uh, he wants to reach a new community and start a church, and so he raises a bunch of money, and he gathers a small group of people around them, and they start inviting more people, and they seek to start a church. And uh, doing all the things that come with church, setting up and printing worship folders and a nursery and everything that comes with it, takes a lot of work, and there's not a lot of people on which to spread the work, um, but you do it because it's, it's life-giving. It's exciting. Statistically, most of the people who come to faith come to faith through small or new churches. And so in the midst of this challenging, chaotic environment of this new church plant, you have people coming in who haven't gone to church in years, who've never gone before, who understand the gospel in new and deeper ways. And in the midst of the chaos, there's this vibrant zest of life and renewal. Uh, St. Louis is an old city. And uh, while I'm in the midst of this church planning melu, this gospel excitement, um, my wife and I interned in a city center church plant in sort of broken, urban St. Louis. And I'm driving around the city over the course of the years while I live there, and I'm constantly passing these massive, beautiful, stone churches, cathedrals, tall ceilings, stained glass windows— and I begin asking myself, there's these churches everywhere. Why is it that I, I've never meet people that go to these churches? I never hear about these churches. And so I began researching and looking into the history of these massive church buildings all over St. Louis. Uh, and it turns out that some of them aren't churches anymore. Um, one of the most beautiful is the massive stone building. used to be Lafayette Presbyterian Church has now been subdivided uh, into condos. So they have put floors in the sanctuary and walls, and so you you can now buy a chunk of Lafayette Presbyterian Church for about $200,000. Other churches continue to exist, and I found out some of them have 20 members, some six, some none. No joke. No members. But because the churches had been around so long, they had many of them, most of them, multi-million dollar endowments. And so the salary for the full staff that these churches have comes just off the top of the interest of the endowments. Uh, and the churches had, had no message. Um, many of them didn't believe in the importance of Jesus for salvation or that Jesus rose from the dead or any such thing. Uh, like I said, some of them didn't have members, and yet they continue to exist and have staff and do I don't know what living off of the endowments that they'd had from years before. So in this context, I began to increasingly kind of feel this tension and almost this injustice of here we are. We're church planting and there's life. People are coming to faith. The, the neighborhoods are being restored and yet we have no place to meet, almost no resources, no finances. And just down the road, you have this massive, beautiful building with no gospel, and yet millions of dollars. 
But as I thought through it even more, eventually I realized that every church starts at some point as a church plant. And that each one of these churches that I had begun to become really irritated at for hoarding all these resources had once been a church plant with the vibrant and lively small group of people who desired to reach their neighborhood, welcome people in, and built these churches, most of whom had thousands of members at one point, who gave of their hard-earned money, earned in factories and various labors, to build the endowments these churches had, to spread the news of the gospel in the city. And many of these churches had, in the past, had a profound and life-giving impact on the city. You could read stories in the the newspaper from a hundred years ago about the wonderful things these churches are doing. Uh, In one case, there's a statue that the city erected to one of the pastors after he died out of thanks for the life-giving influence that the church had had on the city. And yet, a hundred years later, so many of them had, had, had died from the inside out. They're like zombie churches dead and yet somehow still alive. And I learned that you cannot depend on institutions or churches or people for the sustenance and growth of the gospel. That we are, ever since the fall, fundamentally a people of non-possibilities. That There is a tendency for things to decay and break down over time. And I'm quite committed to our denomination, but if I could know that 100 years from now it would be equally as lifeless, it wouldn't shock me. It's the way of the world since the fall. Even in our personal lives, if you work in the military and you're organizing some office or section or duty station you know in your heart that a couple years from now, you'll be gone, there'll be another guy, he'll reorganize it his own way, in whatever labor we're in, that, that there's a, a decay that happens with human nature. I've said before, as we've followed these covenants through the Bible, with, with each one we find this new, this growth, this new, beautiful, life-giving piece of information. And yet with each one, we're left with a little bit of a sense of, uh, okay, but th- there's still something else that we need. And if you've been paying close attention, you will have been well aware by now that none of these covenants has yet dealt with the problem of the people themselves. with the brokenness of people, that in Noah, evil was wiped out in the world, and we got to start brand new with a fresh start with Noah and a few righteous people in the ark, and immediately things get strange, and within two chapters we've got chaos and the the Tower of Babel. We get the covenant with Abraham and the promise that God is going to redeem the whole world through this family. It's uh, just this beautiful vision of all of creation being restored And the next chapter, Abraham gives up on the promise, goes to Egypt, and tries to give his wife away. And sets off a generational pattern of husbands giving their wives away. We see the law 
given to Moses, that, that the Israel finally has guidance. How is it that you're going to redeem the whole world? It's this beautiful guidance that shows us God's nature, and Moses can't even make it down from the mountain before the Israelites build a calf to another god. And then we get the covenant with David, that the sign that the people will be organized under a great kingly leader. And he'll mediate between them and God. And as the king is righteous, so the people will fall in his righteousness. And within a few chapters, David's murdering innocent people. And his descendants go on not only to not lead the people in righteousness, they actually lead them into evil. So there's this progressive building, but still the fundamental problem of the human heart has not been fixed. One pastor of mine once said, one of the best things that can happen to you is early in your days to realize your own failure and the need you have for the gospel. Israel, God's people, whom he's called to be a light and a nation to the world, now not only follow the other nations in evil doing, but but lead them, that come up with evils that no one had ever thought of before. The entire history of kings and prophets chronicles just the downward, disgusting trajectory of people sacrificing their children and mistreating the poor and going after other gods. The prophet Jeremiah, early in this same book, says, speaking for the Lord, But from our youth, the shameful thing has devoured all for which our fathers labored. Their flocks and their herds, their sons and their daughters, let us lie down in our shame and let our dishonor cover us, for we have sinned against the Lord our God, we and our fathers. From our youth, even to this day, we have not obeyed the voice of the Lord our God. The Lord himself says, Therefore I will contend with you, declares the Lord. And with your children's children, I will contend. For cross the coasts of Cyprus and see, or send to Kedar and examine with care. See if there has ever been such a thing. Has a nation changed its gods, even though they are no gods? But my people have changed their glory for that which does not profit. Be appalled, O heavens, at this. Be shocked. Be utterly desolate, declares the Lord. For my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me the fountain of living waters, and hewed out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that can hold no water. That despite all the good words, the promises, the gifts of land and relationship and nation that the Lord has given them, there's something almost inevitable about decay in these people who've received grace most of all, more than any others, In Amos, the Lord says, I hate, I despise your feasts. I take no delight in your solemn assemblies. In our passage in Jeremiah 31, you can see this theme. In verse 32, he references the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, which probably refers to all of the covenants collectively together that we've spoken of. My covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. 
which throughout the prophets is God's favorite image for his relationship between his people, that it's not about the law or the ceremony. It's fundamentally about relationship, that I, the Lord, I'm your husband. This is, this is a relationship like a marriage, and you have walked away from me. Earlier in Jeremiah, he says, on what hill have you not slept with the other gods? That you look around, you can't even think of a place where you haven't left me. Nowhere in here does the Lord bring fault with the covenant. The problem isn't with the law or the king or with the promise to Abraham. The covenant is with the pro- the problem is with the Israelites themselves and their inability to just receive the Lord's love, to stay faithful to Him and into relationship with Him. What is needed is a covenant that can change the Israelites themselves from the inside out. And that is what's promised in this passage. Jeremiah 31 is not exactly a covenant itself, but a promise that a new covenant is coming. A new covenant that can deal at last with the fundamental broken nature of people, even God's own people. For all of these passages, they're not about the nations, they're not about the unbelievers, they're about people who've identified themselves as believers. That something must be done for us to hold us to the Lord. And so the Lord here re-promises and begins to fulfill what he said to Abraham long ago that I'll take my responsibility for my end of the covenant, and someday I'll also take responsibility for your end of the covenant. And so we see, we see that two things are promised in this new covenant, in this passage. The forgiveness of sins and the writing of the law on the heart. Before we dive into the two, you should take note that Jeremiah here calls this the new covenant, which implies there's a difference between the new covenant and the old covenant, which is a little bit of a sticky question. And so with each of these two things, the forgiveness of sins and the writing of the law on the heart, we'll see that there's, there's an element of continuity in which the new covenant really just builds on the old covenant. But there's also a way in which the new covenant is, is new. So I want to start with the second of two, the forgiveness of sins. Read in verse 34. No longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me. From the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord, because I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sin no more. He's saying in the new covenant will come a promise that all iniquity, all sin, all of this shortcoming, all of this stuff that we've talked about up till now will finally be done away with to the extent that the Lord won't even remember it. Well, that's actually not entirely new. That's what the Lord promised to Adam and Eve. Someday I'm going to take care of this. I'm going to crush the evil, even though it's now in you. It's what he promised to Abraham in the covenant with the animals split apart. I'll take responsibility. I'll take care of your sins. And we get it 
in even more clear form in, in the guidance, the law towards Israel, the offering of sacrifices. The Lord says, look, I know that you guys can't keep this. There's forgiveness of sins and a procedure. Just take a, a, a ram, a year old, bring it to the tent of meeting, have it slaughtered, and I will forgive your sins. That the Israelites had a faith that is fundamentally the same as ours. They lived with the knowledge of their own shortcomings. All they had to do was to be honest with their own heart and to read the law to know that. But they also lived with a hope that somehow God had promised that he would undo, that he would forgive, he would look over their iniquities. That's why David can say in the Psalms, Blessed is the man whose transgression is forgiven. That they had a, a faith that, that the living, righteous, believing Israelites believed in, that these sins will be covered. And yet in the new covenant, something new happens. That in the old covenant, the animals are offered repeatedly, day after day, year after year. And not just for the people, but you have to offer sacrifices for the people offering sacrifices. People offer sacrifices for the nations and offer sacrifices for the sacrifices in case you didn't offer the sacrifices right. And it's a constant reminder of forgiveness of sins, but it's also a constant reminder of sins that they have to be given over and over and over again. And yet, we're not entirely sure where is the forgiveness coming from because it's clearly not coming from the animal because it didn't work for more than about 10 minutes before I sinned again. One author has said that the offering of animals in the Old Testament was like the writing of checks, that we've got to pay for that sin. We're writing checks, needing forgiveness, believing in faith that someday those checks can be cashed in and that there'll be money in the account to cover the debt because the animals don't really cover it. We're not quite sure where the covering comes from, but the Lord has promised it'll come somewhere. And so a few hundred years after Jeremiah's promise, a man who lived a perfect life, who was also God himself, stood up at a meal and said, this is the cup of the new covenant in my blood. For the forgiveness of your sins. Jesus was speaking about this verse. It's the only place in the Old Testament where they use the phrase new covenant. He could be speaking of no other. That self-consciously on the night of the Last Supper. In his first communion. Last Supper with the disciples. He broke the bread and he raised the cup. And he said this passage. The passage that you've been living in faith in now for 400 years. That someday I will forgive their iniquity and remember their sins no more. It's, it's me that my blood offered on your behalf. That is the account on which all these checks will be drawn. And so now we live in the same faith of the Israelites, knowing our sin and yet knowing there's promise for forgiveness of sins, but yet also knowing the forgiveness of sins comes through Jesus. It's sure. It's final. The sacrifice never has to be offered again. When we do a confession of sin and assurance of pardon, we're not sacrificing again. It's probably a very positive thing for our carpet. Old Testament worship was, was not a clean thing. 
what we're doing is we're just reminding ourselves the sacrifice has already been forgiven. I didn't even know I was going to commit that sin, but he did, and he forgave it. He paid for it already. There's plenty of blood in the account. And we're just applying it to ourselves the same way the Israelites did. This cup is the new covenant in my blood. In this verse, the first half begins, They shall no longer teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. And the English translation says, For, the Hebrew word is key. It means for, because of, therefore. It's a causative statement. I'm not quite sure how to make sense of this, but the Lord believes because of forgiveness of sins... We know who he is. That when we believe by faith and understand that Jesus has secured what was promised for us in the new covenant, that I will forgive their iniquity and I won't even remember their sin, that through it we understand who he really is. Because that's his name. I am your Lord, the God, gracious, compassionate, as his name is given in Exodus. Secondly, verse 33, we see that there's a promise that in this new covenant, the law will be written on our hearts. He says this, For this is the covenant, this is the new covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts, and I will be their God and they shall be my people. The continuity is that he doesn't say, and this is the covenant that I'll, get, I'll make for them. Finally, we're going to get rid of that crazy law. He doesn't say that. Or he doesn't say, we'll make a new law. He says, all that stuff, all these covenants have been building up till now, that were good and true and beautiful, all my guidance, through which you can Know me, we can have a relationship, and you can glorify me and bless the whole world and share this message of peace and grace to the whole world, which you weren't able to do. I'm going to take that, and I'm going to put it inside you. So that the problem that's been up till now will finally be dealt with. That all the sins you've committed, they'll be covered over, they won't be forgotten, and you'll now be able to do What I've asked, you'll be able to be gracious, compassionate, and caring like I am. This promise comes to us again through Jesus and is inaugurated at the Pentecost. When King Jesus, now ascended as the true David, the righteous king who leads his people in righteousness, sends his Holy Spirit to live in their hearts. And immediately, we read in Acts 2, people are praying, they're reading the word, they're miraculously speaking the gospel in foreign languages. There's people present from all over the world, and they say to one another, how is it that these Israelites are speaking this truth about God in our language? It says people were giving of their things to one another. It's, it's the law made real. And so the whole book of Acts and the history of the church spins out from there as the message gets taken to every place. 
one of my professors said, the day of Pentecost is like the space shuttle. It's an airplane illustration, but I'm borrowing it from someone else. That you've, you've got the orbiter, that the aerodynamics of the old covenant have not changed. But what we have now is the orbiter has been strapped to this massive 30-story fuel tank filled with liquid hydrogen and oxygen, highly combustible. And at the, the moment the count reaches zero, the whole thing gets lit off like a barely controlled explosion. And the thing just leaps off of the platform. And that's what happens in the day of Pentecost, that the church, filled with the Holy Spirit, the new Israel, is finally able to explode in life and to become the blessing to the world that God always intended for them to be. Now filled with the life-giving spirit, the spirit named after holiness. The Holy Spirit placed on our hearts that we might love the law and see it and recognize its beauty and respond to the God who called us to himself to be renewed and alive. Well, my opening illustration about the death of churches, I think by itself illustrates, because it doesn't come from the period before Jesus Christ, that the things promised in this covenant aren't entirely real. That it just doesn't seem in in a new covenant world with Holy Spirit-filled believers and forgiveness of sins that, that churches should decay and die. I have two things to say about that. One, we will see that fully realized in glory. That what we're promised in many places in the new scripture and what should be exciting to us that we should long for is the moment that we die, we immediately pass into Christ's presence and are freed from sin. That from that moment on, you look at sin And you just say, you, yuck, who would do that? And just to have that freedom to never again be tempted, to be filled with the life of the Holy Spirit and constantly in his presence and to never again be tempted by darkness or decay or to mistreat one another, to never again experience the shame or hurt or exposure of being the broken people we are, to be free, to be seen down to the deepest part of our guts and to have everything be free and clean and clear. And at the new heavens and the new earth to receive redeemed bodies and to be able to live out and to be that blessing in the new heavens and the new earth. That is where we're headed. That, that is the trajectory of the story. But it's also, it's also true now. Theologians call this the already and not yet. So the new covenant is not yet completely true, but but already it actually is. But maybe different than we expect. That we can't in this covenant trust in institutions or churches or structures. But what we can trust in is the promise and the work of the Holy Spirit 
that churches will come and go and decay and the Lord will bury his workmen and move on, but there will always be a place where the Holy Spirit is alive and working. It might not always be the beautiful place with the beautiful buildings and the organized structure and the fancy stained glass windows, but it'll be there and it's growing. My friends, if you are a believer, if you're part of the church, you are, you are part of something. We are on a trajectory. It's 45 seconds past lunch, and we are already seven miles downrange and twice the speed of sound, quickly accelerating. That is what's happening in the New Covenant, and it's happening everywhere around the world. Because that's what was promised. A couple nights ago, I drove into my driveway late in the day on one of these beautiful fall evenings that has finally arrived. It was cool outside, and the sky was shockingly clear. And I looked up, and there were stars from horizon to horizon. I could see the different constellations. And then, maybe because we've been going through the sermon series, I remembered the promise to Abraham that he was to look into the sky and number the stars if you can, which is a Hebrewism for you can't. So shall your children be. And I've realized it's happened, it's really happening. I am not alone. That as many as there are stars up there, there are believers around the planet. And just as they are scattered across the sky from horizon to horizon, as points of light scattered out in every place, so is the globe now with little dots of light. In Jakarta, Bangladesh, Johannesburg, London, Berlin, Fiji, and every place. In the Congo, places where you would not expect to see points of light, there are points of light. And we, we are part of it, growing in every place. That our hope in this new covenant is that this mission would continue and that the Lord is at work transforming our hearts and uniting us to this people who've now become what was given to Abraham, the life-giving influence to the entire world. And we're free to participate in that mission boldly because of the forgiveness of our sins. That this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel. And after those days, declares the Lord, I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts, and I will be their God. And they, you, shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me. From the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray.